Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, we're talking about The Blue Flame of Vengeance by Robert E. Howard. This story has a complicated publishing history. It was uh, initially written around 1930, but it wasn't published until much later, uh, I believe in the 1960s or so. Right. And, and when it was published, it had a different name and, and had some elements of it missing, some aspects of it missing. But we're reading it out of this Del Rey series that collects everything that Howard ever did. And it's it's fully restored here and has its original title back. More importantly than that stuff, though, than the manuscript tradition is the fact that this is our very first Solomon Kane story. This is something I've been excited about since we started Elder Sign. But before we get into it, something else that I am very excited about, which is that we have just released our first episode about the occult detective John Constantine, uh, who is the the star, the protagonist of the Hellblazer comics. Brent and I, my, my co-host on Hanging Out with the Dream King, uh, Brent and I took a look at the Neil Gaiman penned issue Hold Me. Uh, we did that over on Patreon. We had a really great time with it. So we hope you'll join us for that if you aren't already with us over there. But all right, let's talk about Solomon Kane. So he is certainly lesser than Conan in the wider public imagination, I think. But Solomon Kane is one of Howard's recurring protagonists who has a series of crazy adventures. In this case, rather than taking place in a speculative fiction world of Howard's own devising, like Conan does, this is historical fiction. Solomon Kane is an Englishman. He's a member of the Puritan religious sect, and he loves fighting evil wherever he finds it all around the world. And we'll talk about that as we go. And I I think we'll also spend some of the discussion episode on maybe just the basic concept of a Puritan ninja, (laughs) which is not a thing I ever thought I would say. And by the way, we probably should have said this sooner, but we, we, we definitely have to say that, hey, this is a novella, so we are going to be spending two episodes on it. This episode is the recap. Then next time, we'll do the discussion. So let's do that recap. Brandon, uh, it's your turn, so take us away. Yeah, one other thing to point out before we get started here is that this story has no you know, supernatural elements in it, which I think is a surprise to a lot of readers who are familiar with Solomon Cain, who is not just fighting evil people around the world, but also evil beings like demons and stuff. So this story didn't quite fit maybe with the rest of the Solomon Cain stories, which is perhaps why it wasn't uh, published along with the rest of them. But all right. Blue Flame of Vengeance is split into five chapters and it's filled with action scenes and sword fights. And it does have a real 19th century adventure novel feel to it. But it's much shorter than many of those books. And I'm thinking here of like The Count of Monte Cristo or The Three Musketeers or Scaramouche, which is a 20th century novel. And this novella opens with action. Two men are dueling on a small stretch of beach. And Howard opens the story this way. The blades crossed with a sharp clash of venomous steel. Blue sparks showered. Across those blades, hot eyes burned into each other. Hard inky black eyes and volcanic blue ones breath hissed between close locked teeth feet scruffed the sward advancing retreating and soon you know while the steel is going on a portly man calls a halt to the duel Uh, sir george one of the duelers has been wounded and he is the black-eyed dueler and sir george is furious that a halt has been called this duel he says must be to the death And the blue-eyed dueler, whose name is Jack Hollister, agrees. This duel must be to the death, not just to first blood. 
But it was the magister of the town who called the halt. His name is Rupert Darcy, and his word stands. Yeah, you're not kidding, Brandon, when you say that the story begins with action. I mean, there is no slow burn for this story. Before we even have the name of a character, or really even the presence of a character, we've got blades, we've got swords, right? This story opens in the middle of violence, and violence is going to be the central motif of this story. But it's not just the fact of the violence, it's the intensity of the violence. There's real anger, I guess, to the way that Howard opens this story, even before he's shown us the characters who actually despise each other, and before he's explained any of the backstory that we're going to get that sets all of this up, right? These swords are, as you said, Brian, they're, they're, they're venomous. The the eyes of these characters are hot. These dudes are hissing at each other through locked teeth, right? There is just anger and rage, violent anger and violent rage here at the top of the, the story. And that is going to be the thing that we're going to see almost every character have as a defining attribute through this story. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Well, these guys are still really mad at each other, even though Robert Darcy has called a halt to the duel. And that's evident because Jack and Sir George are standing their ground. And eventually, one of Sir George's seconds gets Sir George to put his blade away. And now the crowd of spectators and seconds and the duelers and the magistrate eventually disperse and, and, and wander back to the village, which is not too far away from the spot on the beach, this little uh, sward, this stretch of grass in the sand where these men are dueling. Jack, though, is still furious, and he shouts a threat to Sir George Banway. He says, look to yourself. A scratch in the arm will not blot out the insult whereof you know. The next time we meet... There will be no magistrate to save your rotten hide. And Jack is a commoner. And (laughs) in this story, Sir George is obviously a sir. He's a nobleman. And Rupert Darcy censures Jack for adding insult to injury in this moment. Uh, But Banway, all that he does is turn around and he glares at Jack, kind of ready to fight again. And here, his second urges Banway to continue back to town. So it's Jack Hollister and Sir George Banway. They're the two characters caught up in this conflict. I'll be calling them Jack, Banway, Sir George. I'll be using other names in in the recap. (laughs) Well, Jack and his second, Rendell, remain on the beach. Jack really hates Sir George Banway. And Rendell is trying to get Jack to calm down and just get over this seething rage. He tells Jack that what Banway did actually wasn't killing over. And Jack's like, oh, no. And what Banway did that started this duel was insult Mary Garvin, who is the girl that Jack is in love with, and she's maybe in love with him. Banway insulted Mary Garvin to Jack's face in the tavern. And at this point, Rendell's like, I I get it. I really do. But apart from having this duel at the tavern, you also threw a cup of wine in his face and you slapped him and you threw over a table and you kicked him a couple, two, three times. And then you also bested him in this duel. So, I mean, I think it's over. And, you know, Rendell goes on, Sir George didn't even have to duel you. He could have just claimed his rank and said, you know, you're not worth dueling. We can't duel each other. I think this is all actually pretty good reasoning. I think Rendell's got a a kind of a stable head on his shoulders here. (laughs) But Jack doesn't back down. He says that if Banway would have claimed his rank, Jack would have just put a bullet between his eyes. And Jack explains why this is. The the injustice of Banway's comments goes deeper than merely insulting Mary at 
the bar. It's that Banway knows Jack is poor and he's the son of a poor man. And Banway is just throwing around his power and thinks he can take Mary if he wants her, like he takes any maid in these parts, because of his power and wealth, and nobody fights back. So Jack is carrying around a much larger sense of injustice here than just this insult to his beloved. After Jack gets all this out, he he recognizes he needs to cool down. So he dismisses Rendell, and he takes a walk away from town down the beach. Before he leaves, Rendell tells Jack that it might not be safe for Jack to be out and about because Banway can retaliate against this insult and losing the stool using all these back channels and this kind of mob of bullies he keeps at his beck and call, uh, Banway does. Jack tells Rendell that if Banway goes that route, it'll be in the darkness of midnight, not midday. So right now, he's fine, and he really needs this walk. We're still only three or four pages into this story at this point, and this is a ton of backstory and a ton of, of conflict that Howard is peppering in here. And of course, one of the things that we do here on Elder Sign is to look at both the, the writing and the storytelling, right? We like to, to put our own writer's hats on when we do this. And I'm really interested in the way that Howard balances action, character, plot, and description here at the opening of this story, right? We we start with the action, then we get introduced to our characters and the plot, right? It's two fighting over a woman with some class stuff thrown into it. And then finally, only after all of that, does Howard actually give us some description. And he does this by writing, it was a strange setting for such a scene, which is kind of an awkward transition. And this definitely isn't how I use description when when I'm writing, though, you know, I'm probably doing it wrong, right? Uh, But I have to say that I love what follows. And I just want to read what Howard has written here, because this is the Robert E. Howard that I love most. Descriptive Robert E. Howard. A low, level land, sparsely grown with sickly yellow grass, now withered, ran to a wide strip of white sand, strewn with bits of driftwood. Beyond this strip, the sea washed gray and restless, a dead thing upon whose desolate bosom the only sign of life was a single sail hovering in the distance. Inland, across the bleak moors, there could be seen in the distance the drab cottages of a small village. And I love the word smithing here. These are just some great phrases. Uh, Desolate bosom definitely needs to be a band name if it isn't already. (laughs) Someone needs to get on this. But this also creates a really eerie atmosphere. And I I think we may want to return to this idea of the sea as a dead thing as we get into our our plot a little bit. And, And we should probably talk about the characterization that Howard gets up to as well. Howard is here drawing what he, I guess, imagines to be a typical English community in early modernity. There's a village of drab cottages, there's a tavern, and there are a few members of the aristocracy, or or at least members of the, the gentry, maybe we should say. And these are in the form of Sir George and then the magistrate with the French name Rupert Darcy. The villagers themselves, of course, have drab names to go with their cottages, right? Jack and Mary and Dick. The villagers are the good guys here, right? The common folk, while the villain of the story is Sir George. Rupert Darcy, the the magistrate, is not evil, but he is clearly incompetent. So we definitely have some class struggle here with a government that's incapable of doing anything to protect people from predatory aristocrats. Of course, this is a tale as old as time, right? But this also really feels like it was written at the start of the Great depression around 1930. I'm really glad you pointed out the descriptive powers of Howard's writing. This story is full of really great descriptions of 
the world around Jack and the clothes characters wear and the way they interact with each other and even even the fights when we get to these kind of sword fights and duels later on in the story are really well described and well written and you know Howard is trying his hand at using some symbolism in this story I think we'll probably talk about (laughs) how successful that is uh, if it's not but yeah the class stuff is right on the page and it's I mean it's timely the Great Depression uh, saw these kinds of class tensions come to a head in our own country uh, and and so this is clearly on Howard's mind who was writing to sell to magazines uh, and that that's how he's making his living right absolutely and of course this is when TV, was magazines, right? So all of this rich description of the, the setting, the the people, the action, all of that is really trying to scratch the itch that I think TV does for us today, right? You can just jump into this story, takes an hour of your time, you jump out, right? You can uh, go make dinner for your family or whatever, whatever you're up to, you know, after your entertainment. And you've gotten all of your senses stimulated through the power of Howard's wordsmithing here. Right. And the escapism is here too. this kind of everyman character who is feeling this sense of injustice and trying to find his way to fight back, but is doing it maybe ineffectively or not as effectively as he would like. Jack is walking down the beach at this point in the story, the beach uh, you so beautifully read that Howard describes in the story, Glenn. And he's thinking a lot about Mary and how great she is and how he longs for her and to be away from this uh, drab English village. Then he thinks about how much he hates Banway. Then he curses, uh, taking the Lord's name in vain, I think we're, we're supposed to, to get here. Uh, and a voice responds, young man, your words are vain and worldly. They are a sounding brass and tinkling cymbals, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. And here Howard is combining Shakespeare and the New Testament, one of the, the letters of Paul to the Corinthians here. Uh, it's kind of a odd use of illusion, uh, maybe the oddest one I've ever seen, but I enjoy it. I like that this is our introduction to Solomon Cain. He's quoting Macbeth in the Bible. Jack turns around, he puts his hand on his sword hilt, and he is surprised to see a man sitting on the boulder. I've already spoiled it. It's Solomon Cain. And we get a description of Solomon Cain here. The man is of medium height, broad shoulders. He has a deep chest. He has the look of a swordsman. And something about this man reminds Jack of one of the great gaunt gray wolves he had seen on the Siberian steppe. So we know that Jack has traveled maybe as a, as a soldier. Uh, the man's eyes are gray. He wears plain clothing like a Puritan because he is one. And everything he wears is unadorned and simple, which is kind of the Puritan uh, clothing style, except for this sash that he's wearing. And the sash is described as being a sinister, virulent green color of oriental silk. And he uses that to hold his two heavy pistols. As I said, the man is Solomon Cain and introduces himself as such. Solomon Cain has traveled a lot. For instance, we find out that he was once a captain in the French army. He fought some difficult battles, maybe was on the wrong side of good, or maybe did some things uh, where the ends justified the means and the outcome was ultimately good. But he, he carries a lot of guilt about his past. But Cain is not interested in talking about his past too much. What he really wants to do is ask Jack, about that ship that's far out to sea that you you referenced in that description, Glenn. Jack says he can't really make much of it, but Kane thinks he recognizes the ship 
and he would like to meet the ship's master. Jack thinks the ship could potentially be a smuggling ship because there's no harbor in this village and custom officials never really visit the town. So any ship that's going to come up here is is probably doing some smuggling. Kane asks Jack if he has heard of Jonas Hardraker, the fish hawk. Jack, like everybody else, knows the name. Hardraker is a vicious pirate. Kane clearly thinks that this ship in the distance is Hardraker's. And for Kane, that's good. It's maybe not good, but it's good for the story. Kane has unfinished business with the ship, and he's glad on some level, in the way a Puritan can be glad, to have come across it because he's been seeking after it for a long time. And this is what Kane says. He says, For by the fires of hell there is no hotter fire than the blue flame of vengeance, which burneth a man's heart night and day without rest until he can quench it in blood. Cain obviously views himself as an instrument of God's vengeance. After saying these things and giving us the title of the story, Cain walks away with Jack just gaping at him. And this is the end of the first chapter. Before we move into the second chapter, I do want to comment on this introduction of Solomon Kane. I mean, it is fantastic, right? He's an action hero. He's tall. He's all lean muscle. These first lines where he's quoting Macbeth and quoting the New Testament are just fantastic. I mean, you said it's kind of a weird mashup of illusions, but it does actually, I think, tell us everything that we need to know about him. One, it grounds him in time. Uh, we know then that this must be after Macbeth was written, and this helps us zero in on the Puritan period or where in that period were located because we know when Macbeth was written or first performed in 1606. So this must be at least after that. I mean, maybe it's only a week after that and Solomon Cain was just there. But the quoting of the Bible and especially of the, the New Testament lets us know, right, that, that Solomon Cain is serious about being a Puritan, that he's into reading the Bible. That was a big thing that the Puritans were into. It's actually, you know, part of their whole idea of being pure was to not have all of the sort of structure, uh, the intellectual structure, as well as institutional structure of the high church. But then, of course, quoting Macbeth not only lets us know when we are, Macbeth itself is really wrapped up in something that goes hand in hand with Puritanism, which is hunting witches, right? We've actually talked about hunting witches before here on Elder Side, uh, back when we were doing uh, The Ebony Frame by Edith Nesbitt, which has a backstory that takes place basically right around this same time. I mean, it might have been The Village Next Door. In fact, I would I would watch that TV show where it has these stories mashed up somehow. Um, but I do think that this is a fantastic way to introduce Solomon Kane to kind of just give this one line that tells us so much about his character. And of course, as you said at the top, Brandon, that this is strangely and entirely my fault, the only Solomon Kane story that doesn't actually feature any kind of weird fiction element, any kind of speculative fiction element. But certainly when I was reading this, I thought this was a, a clue that we were going to get some witches at some point. We're not, but that's okay. And maybe saying that gave away too much about this story because Howard does tease that there are strange powers maybe guiding these characters. And we'll see that George Banway does some pretty astonishing things that Jack does view with an eye towards uh, superstition. So we'll, we'll be getting to that in a little while. But now we're on chapter two here. This is called One Comes in the Night. It opens with Jack Hollister, who once again is our blue-eyed duelist. Jack is awoken from his dream-haunted slumber. It's night, obviously, and he hears a warning shh come from his window. He grabs his sword 
and looks out the window and there's a man there telling him to grab his sword, which he's already done, and follow him. Sir George has Mary. She's been kidnapped. And this man, whose name is Sam, he's a stable attendant down at the tavern, witnessed this happen. And so he came to get Jack. So Sam and Jack head out to Sir George's house. And this is described as being an an evil house. And boy, I wonder what could possibly befall an evil house. Uh, We we certainly haven't (laughs) no precedent of knowing what happens to evil houses in weird fiction. So we'll find out. Uh, But the villagers have a lot of ill tales about it. And it's, it's a rich description here. But Sir George doesn't just control the land around the house, uh, but he treats the beach and the caves near his house, you know, the rocks around it and the sea caves, as his own private property as well. And it's not just that this house has an aura of evilness to it. It's that villagers who actually try to explore the caves or walk on Sir George's beach are likely to be shot at. So Sam and Jack are now at Sir George's house. They've done a little sneaking around and Jack is encouraged by Sam to try to sneak into the house using a window because it'll be quieter than opening a door. Jack sees a little wisdom in this and maybe because his brain is functioning at this point, he he realizes that there are no guards or sentries patrolling the grounds and there usually are, you know, to shoot villagers if they try to trespass on Sir George's property. But everything is just too quiet tonight. But Jack does want to get Mary back. That's his only motivation. So he tries a window and it does open super easily. And then he realizes that everything has just been too easy. The lack of guards, the warning about Mary, the window being open. It's just too many coincidences. And just as he has this realization... Sam strikes Jack with a bludgeon on the back of the head, clocking him pretty good, and and, and Jack gets knocked out. Right, and that is the end of chapter two. I mean, it's not really all that much of a cliffhanger because, you know, it's one one line down. <laughs> chapter three starts, you can keep going with it. But if this were serialized, if this were a TV show, I mean, this is when you would go to commercial. And it's definitely done. I, I want to go back to this description of Sir George's Manor because it is awesome. It's got a real gothic feel to it, right? It's backed up against the moors. There are rumors of secret caves. It's in a state of disrepair. It's stained with age. It's full of evil visits servants and evil cronies. It is also set apart from the village, and not just in terms of distance, but in terms of disposition, I guess we could say, right? The villagers don't go there. And it is a great image. Howard has created this gothic manor here. I'm not sure it actually makes any sense here in the 17th century, though. This is still a rural economy, and Sir George is the local landowner. It would actually be really hard for him not to be involved with the village and the villagers in some way. And and I won't belabor that point here, because this is actually something that we'll take up in the discussion episode, but that's one of the reasons I'm doing the discussion and Brandon is doing the recap, is that this is historical fiction, and I want to put my historian's hat on when we get to that discussion episode. Yeah, I am not a historian, so so I'm excited to, to get your perspective on all that's going on here and all this sort of madness and, and anachronisms that are going on in this story. But let's move on to chapter three. Uh, the, these chapters three and four are a little bit longer, uh, but they're full of action. So we won't narrate all the action. Chapter three is called Death's Walkin' Tonight. And it opens with Jack Hollister slowly regaining consciousness. There's a rule of fiction writing where if you have to knock out your character in order to move the story forward, 
Uh, you, you've probably taken a misstep some way in plotting, but it really works in this story because it shows Jack's motivation, his kind of foolhardiness, his ready to jump into action. And everything that happens in this story reinforces Jack's desire to take action and continue to defend Mary and get his justice. So this works, this moment works because it shows his foolhardiness. And it does actually advance the plot, but it doesn't erase a lot of time that we need a backstory for after Jack wakes up. Jack is tied up on a dirt floor. He can't move His head hurts a lot, as you would expect. And even the dim red light from the the lantern in the cellar where he is, is too much for his eyes to take in. It's too much light. But his eyes are open, and so he can get a sense of his surroundings. He can see a staircase leading up to the main floor and a dark passageway leading out of the cellar to somewhere else. Jack also sees a bunch of men in the cellar. Of course, There's George Banway, and there's the traitor, Sam, and Jack sees a few of Banway's other regular, you know, ruffians and bullies in the cellar as well, but then there are also 10 or 12 other men that Jack doesn't know. These men are obviously sailors due to the presence of, you know, them wearing earrings and having jewel-hilted daggers and the amount of drinking and dicing and swearing that's going on in this must be a massive cellar. And Jack realizes that, like, hey, these guys are probably pirates, and they might be the pirates that Solomon Cain was talking about before and looking for. One of the pirates, who at first glimpse looks a little like Solomon Cain, turns around and he he looks at Jack, and Jack realized that though this man initially reminded him of Solomon Cain, it's clear that this man is not Solomon Cain. Where Cain is simply dressed, except for his gun sash, this man is covered in opulence and he's super into accessorizing and this man has a much meaner face and he has a long mustache like a manchu mandarin of course this like kind of fu manchu character was all over this pulp fiction uh in the in the late 19th and early 20th century and this man tells george that jack is awake and george turns and addresses jack he says you spoke truth hollister When you said with our next meeting, no magistrate should intervene. Only now, methinks, tis your rotten hide shall suffer. So Banway had his feelings hurt real bad uh, by by Jack's insult earlier in the story. Yeah, I have to say, I, I love the descriptions that we get here as as Jack is is coming to you and taking stock of his surroundings and, you know, this opulent pirate dude, right? He's the pirate captain. We don't know this yet at this point in the story, but of course, we know this must be the fishhawk that Solomon Cain was talking about because that's how stories work. And so even though we don't actually know that officially yet, Howard does a great job of cluing us into it because he describes his face in actually much the same way that we might describe a hawk. The, the first line that he speaks even includes the word prey, right? This is expertly done by Howard here. Yeah, that's a great point. I think I probably missed that clue while I was reading, but it's just really obvious that you mentioned pirates and Jonas Hardraker earlier. There are pirates in the story now. It's obvious who this pirate band is and who they belong to. Right. You, you don't need two bands of pirates in your story. No, I don't even know if we need the character Sam in this story when we have all these nameless ruffians. So... There's a, there's a few things we can probably talk about in the discussion that would really clean up this story a little bit, but 
we have more to get through before we get to that. Well, before Jack can respond to Banway's threat, he hears another voice call his name, and it's Mary. She's been kidnapped, too. This wasn't just a ploy to get Jack to Banway's house. And now Jack is furious, so he threatens to fight the whole lot of this wretched crew in the basement, and he calls them a bunch of names and shows his courage. Banway just basically tells Jack to shut up because Jack had had his chance to kill Banway and he wasted it. He didn't have the courage to kill Banway in front of the magistrate. And as a result of that, Banway is going to unceremoniously murder Jack and drop him into the sea. No one knows where Jack went. He disappeared in the middle of the night. So it's not going to be a big deal. But Banway has other plans for Mary. He's going to keep Mary in the basement until he gets tired of her. And he's kind of explaining his plan. And before he says when he gets tired of her, he's going to kill her and drop her in the sea too. The pirate captain jumps in and says, uh, try not to get tired of her before two months are out because we'll be back and we'll just take her off your hands. And George says, yeah, that makes sense. In two months, if she's still alive, you know, she might die accidentally while, while she's in the basement. But if she doesn't, you guys can have her in two months. It's a, it's a harrowing conversation that's taking place here. While the pirates and George are, are negotiating the transfer of Mary and smuggled goods and Jack's body in the sea, Jack asks Mary how she got kidnapped. She tells him she was also tricked. She was given a forged letter that was in Jack's hand, uh, and the letter told her he wanted to meet her by the rocks, which are right by the sea caves. When she got there, she was seized and carried through a long tunnel into the cellar. Sam now pipes up and says he was the one who orchestrated all of this nonsense. And at this point, the first mate of the pirate crew is getting a little nervous about having two people in the town go missing with this obviously overactive and excited bad guy like Sam who will just probably brag about this to everybody and they're going to blame the pirates because the it's obvious that the pirates are in town everybody can see their ship off the coast so the first mate is nervous and his name is Allardine so the captain of this crew Hardraker tells Allardine to take it easy he's learned from George that Mary's father is against her relationship with Jack and when both Jack and Mary disappear, the town will think they just eloped. Allardine says, fine, like, let's just do whatever we have to do, but let's do it quickly. He has a premonition that death is on the tail of the pirate crew. Their karma, so to speak, is catching up with them. The captain tries to boost everyone's morale again by getting them to drink more. But then someone hears a muffled scream overhead. The captain didn't hear anything. And that means it didn't happen. So he's a good captain. That's a great quality of leadership <laughs> right there. But Allardine did hear something. The captain is just tired, though, of Allardine's cautiousness and superstition and worry. But Allardine has good reason to be worried. He reminds the captain that they have a human wolf on their trail. And this is a character that I think shows up in other Solomon Kane stories. Plus, two years ago, they got a word, which was probably just like some sort of letter or promise of vengeance that someone is coming after them. The captain says that the trail is too old and too cold even for, and before he can finish his statement, a man appears on the stairway leading down to the cellar. It's a tall man dressed like a Puritan with two pistols and a sword. It's Solomon Kane. 
that's the end of the third chapter. Yeah, again, this is a this is an action break made for TV. I mean, there needs to be a commercial here. And maybe, I, you know, I've never really looked at these magazines, these pulp magazines, right? I've read a lot of these stories, but it's always in collections like this. So I actually would be interested to, to see what this looked like on the page as these breaks happened. Like, was there an ad there or something like that? Because it seems like there needs to be, right? This, these breaks are just tailor-made for a commercial advertisement. That's certainly how it's done on TV. I don't want to stand too much in the way of getting back to the action. I mean, there's going to be a great entrance here by Solomon Kane, but I do want to point out uh, a few things. Well, really, I want to point out one thing, and then I have a question. Uh, what I want to point out is that this is our second story in a row with sexual violence directed at a woman. We had this in the, the Jack Vance story we did last time, uh, at least this time, though, right? The, the person who's doing this is the bad guy, and this is here to show us just how bad the bad guy actually is, where in the Vance, it was being done by the protagonist, and we had a lot of anxiety and discomfort about that. Uh, but I think we're going to be taking up this type of question, this type of thing in the discussion this time. I think we kind of punted on that a little bit in the, the Jack Vance. But the question I have for you, Brandon, is the, the pirate Allardyne says, the day of the brotherhood is passing in these climbs. I wasn't actually sure what the brotherhood meant here. What brotherhood is he talking about? Do you have any thoughts about this? I think he's just referring to uh, pirates. And the success of pirates. I think this pirate crew, or maybe all pirates together, look at each other as a kind of brotherhood. Uh, it's, it has this real pulpy secret society feel to it, where you know everybody who is of a certain category, like pirates, know each other and have certain ways of telling and under and understanding each other right I, I i guess i didn't catch the thing where where howard indicates that they're speaking in thieves can't here but no i think you're probably right it was capitalized though and i think that was for me i was like oh this is a, an actual proper institution that has like a formal name and people recognize what this what this is i i think you're absolutely right looking at the context of it here my confusion was whether or not he was referring to like the puritans as the brotherhood or something like that but i think you must be right that it's not the puritans it's the pirates yeah that was definitely my sense of the text yet we are going to have to talk about this trope of what is today called fridging women which is an instinct that a lot of writers have to put women in danger in order to motivate male characters this was sort of an unreflective trope uh, in the pulp era and it's still it's still used today in pulp novels i'm not going to comment on whether it's good or bad but we should definitely talk about its presence in these stories Certainly, this is not going to be the last time that we see this, given that we cover a lot of stories from this era. Well, I have uh, I have gotten in the way of us getting back to the action here. Uh, hopefully, we've done just as much time as Howard wants us to pause here. Uh, let's get back to it. Yes. Well, this chapter, chapter four, is called The Quenching of the Flame. And the flame is the blue flame of justice, <laughs> in case anybody had any question or suspense around that. <laughs> well, the chapter opens with Kane commanding Jonas Hardraker to move not. He also tells everyone else to keep still and keep their hands off their weapons. Even though there are 20 men in the cellar, maybe a little more, they all listen to Kane's command. And Allardine is clearly terrified. He tells Jonas, Allardine does, that he should have listened to him. And Allardine felt something was up and now they're done for. Kane is glad that Allardine recognizes him and reminds Allardine that he, Kane, has killed Allardine's last evil captain as well. Kane is here to kill uh, Hardraker. 
Jonas then tells everyone that he's pretty good at stealth missions and it really wasn't too hard for him to get into the house, even with the <laughs> guards around. I don't know why we needed that, but it's in the, it's in the story. Um, I guess we had to explain his arrival somehow and his explanation that he gave to Jack before that he's just, uh, you know, walking around like the main character of Kung Fu, writing wrongs isn't enough when you're <laughs> do, when you're having the final conflict of the story. Yeah, this is really a crazy entrance here, right? That Solomon Kane makes. He's got guns on everyone. And then, yeah, he brags about how awesome he is at evading detection, how awesome he is at silently killing people. And then he gives us all this backstory over a, a two-page spread. Uh, there's a lot of talking here in this action sequence. I mean, this is not the action climax of the story, I guess, but... All of this backstory is going to send all of this into high gear, and we are about to get some serious business action. I mean, like almost 10 straight pages of action at this point. Yeah, it's a lot. But this is the backstory uh, that we get at this point in the story, a little exposition, because Hardraker asks Kane what he wants. So Kane tells Hardraker, who's also the fishhawk, why he has come after this pirate crew in particular. Two years ago, this crew sank a ship in the Caribbees called the Flying Heart. A young girl was aboard the Flying Heart, and this girl was the daughter of a very close friend of Solomon Kane's. And she didn't die in the sinking of the ship. She was taken as the pirate's prisoner and died shortly after she was taken prisoner. And Kane says that death was more kind to her than you had been. What the pirates had done to her is so bad that when her father found out what happened, he went mad and he's still insane to this day. Kane then is the only one left to avenge her. And at this point, Kane loses his cool for a moment because Hardraker challenges Kane's ability to avenge this girl. But then he regains his cool and he tells Hardraker that his last moment, Hardraker's last moment, is upon him. Hardraker asks Kane if he's really just going to shoot him because just shooting somebody in cold blood is what cowards do cowards don't give their opponent an opportunity to defend themselves kane can't handle being called a coward he has one vice we're told and it's his vanity it's his sense of pride and hardraker's words about being a coward have cut kane to the quick and so kane equivocates here he is human after all so he says fine we'll duel and it'll be a fight to the death and Hardraker can choose the weapons. Hardraker chooses knives, which is really violent, close combat. So now that the terms of the duel are laid out, the pirates all put their weapons away. Kane tells the pirates to let Mary and Jack loose. So the pirates do, and Mary and Jack climb partway up the stairs rather than leaving completely because there are still guards outside that will just recapture them because there are no walkie-talkies and stuff to let people know what's <laughs> going on here. And uh, it turns out that neither Jack nor Solomon Kane have really any faith in Mary's ability to be good at stealth missions. And it's also the case that Kane needs a second. All of this is just plot business to keep Jack and Mary in the room witnessing this duel, basically. So Kane gives... Jack, one of the pistols, and says, you know, if anybody tries to help the pirate captain here in the knife fight, Jack just needs to kill them. 
Right. This setup has to happen because one, this is actually Jack's story, not Solomon Kane's. That's uh, that's something else we can take up in the discussion if we want to look at the, the craft here of the, the story. But also because Mary's not done being in the fridge, right? She needs to remain in jeopardy because that is actually what Jack's story is about. I do just want to also point out as well that, of course, Solomon Kane's mission here is also about fridging a woman, putting a woman in a fridge. It's uh, it's removed. It's distant for him. It's not an immediate connection that he has to this person. This isn't his own loved one, his own family member that he's questing for to rescue, right? And here it's vengeance, but it is still vengeance motivated by peril uh, to a, a woman, right? So Howard is is literally doubling down on this trope here. We've got it twice. Both our characters, both the people who qualify as the lead here are motivated by this. Right. That is absolutely the case. But now we're on to the knife fight. Hardraker goads Kane to try to get him to jump in the fray and, and just get the fight going. And Kane replies to Hardraker. He says, there'd be many fires, scum, some hotter than others, but save the fires of hell. All fires may be quenched by blood. And then he jumps in with his knife and the knife fight begins. And, and this knife fight goes on for some time, maybe maybe two whole pages Eventually, though, they're getting worn down and they come close enough to each other and they're both trying to keep the other opponent's knives out of their bodies by brute strength. So they're each holding each other's knife hand with their opposite wrists while trying to plunge the knife into the heart or wherever of the other person. Uh, it's maybe a confusing way to describe it, but they're close to killing each other, and it's a, it's a battle of strength at this point. But, of course, Cain is righteous, and he is performing an honest act of vengeance, so he is going to overcome Hardraker here, and he is inching the knife into Hardraker's chest, and Hardraker knows he's going to die his heart is going to stop hardraker is screaming as his knife plunges into his chest and into his heart and his blood slows its pumping and he's still alive and he's just screaming for a long time this might be another two pages of hardraker screaming and <laughs> howard lets us know that maybe hardraker's screaming because in his mind's eyes in hardraker's mind's eye uh, he's forced to witness and relive all the evil acts he has committed in light of uh, the judgment of God. Perhaps he sees his soul being dragged into hell and is witnessing the torments in store for him. But to everyone else present who is not privy to this you know, descriptive writing of Howard's, they're just witnessing the man being killed. And this really is upsetting to Mary Garvin. So she turns away and covers her ears to, to stop the sound of the screams. When Hardraker eventually stops screaming and Kane is sure that Hardraker is dead, Kane lets go of Hardraker's hand. Uh, he's still holding the knife hand of Hardraker and removes the knife from the body. And then Kane swishes the blade in the air, spraying blood around. And to Jack, this blood looks like a blue flame that is quenched in the scarlet of the red lantern lighting the room. This really should just be the end of it. Uh, Kane has won fair and square. This is a duel, a proper duel. But Jack sees Sam drawing his pistol. And Sam just has no honor here. He He's a concerning figure i think to both the good and the bad bad guys in the story <laughs> and so jack sees sam lifting the pistol and so 
Jack lifts his pistol and shoots really into the crowd, though he's aiming at Sam. He misses, he hits the light, and the basement is plunged into darkness. Yeah, this is another great way to have a pause here. I mean, we're not paused in between chapters, but this does put a, a kind of punctuation mark on this fight scene. You know, dimming the lights like this, turning the lights off, then is going to uh, almost, as if it's a stage play, right? Allow for something to change on the set, which is is what's going to happen. We're going to continue on here. I, I do kind of feel compelled to slow clap here, Brandon. Though I have to say, you did a great job handling this fight scene. I really have no interest in fight scenes in any medium. If this had been a TV show, this is when I would have gotten up to get a, a whiskey or I don't know, make some popcorn or something. <laughs> and so if it had been my job to do the recap this this week, uh, I probably would have narrated this in just two sentences, which would certainly not have done justice to the artistry with which Howard does this fight scene. And I have to say, I was shocked. I mean, really shocked by the graphic descriptions here. I've only read a small amount of Howard, but it's not zero, right? I've read quite a bit of Howard's stories, just not a lot of in terms of percentage. Uh, I have to say, I don't think that I have encountered such disturbing descriptions of violence in any of his other stories. This really was dialed up to uh, 11 to me. And I actually wondered if this was another reason it hadn't gotten published uh, during Howard's own lifetime. Right. And and, I mean, the violence is going to continue and the graphic descriptions are going to remain throughout the rest of this story. Well, the lights are out in the basement. And so some extreme scuffling is taking place. But (laughs) Mary, Jack and Kane all escape through the cellar door. And Jack asks Kane what they should do next. Kane tells them to hang tight so he can scout out the guard locations so they can get Mary out to safety. Again, Mary is really bad at these types of stealth missions that being a man in the 17th century requires. Uh, But once Kane knows where the patrols are, he'll be able to lead them all to safety. Kane stalks off to kind of do this scouting. Jack and Mary hug, and Jack is trying to comfort Mary and tell her it's okay. But almost immediately, she starts screaming again. A secret passageway opens, a passageway coming up from the cellar, and out comes George Banway. Jack pushes Mary away and fires his pistol at Banway, while Banway fires at the same time at Jack. Jack's shot connects to Banway's center mass. I mean, it hits him right in the chest. But it seems to have no deadly effect. I mean, Banway is uh, stunned for a moment, but it's not harmed him. Banway's shot grazes Jack's cheek. And so Jack is kind of like freaking out a little bit. And while Jack is doing that, Banway snatches Mary and escapes. And Jack is stuck there. Kane, who has heard these shots, comes running back. Jack tells Kane that Satan is protecting Banway because the bullet had no effect on him. King tells Jack to calm down for a second, and he works out that the passageway in the basement leads out to the sea caves by Banway's house. This is something I think we've known for a long time. Explicitly here, we're told, though it's been shown to us in the story, that Banway is in league with smugglers and pirates, and the tunnel is how all the logistics work of offloading and, and loading the ship, and also how Banway gets rid of you know bodies and people he kills and women he kills in the town. Kane says that He's pretty sure they're all just going to the beach where they can get back in their pirate boats and row out to the big pirate ship and that they can probably run out to the beach and head off all the pirates and Banway before they get back to their ship and escape onto the seas. Uh, Jack says, all right, let's hightail it then. And so they do. And that is the end of chapter four. Yeah. So we've actually got 
two fight scenes really in in chapter four here, though much quicker than the knife fight. There's this pistol fight, which is is really great. This pistol fight is pretty awesome. Again, if you're here for fight scenes, I mean, certainly Howard is doing an awesome job of fitting in as many different types of fights as he can, or maybe different types of weapons, maybe is what I should say. So far, we've had a sword fight that we open with. We've had this seven or eight page long knife fight. And then we've had this very quick pistol fight that, that has some interesting features to it itself just to, to raise the stakes. And of course, we know that we're going to have to have at least one more fight scene. I was also reminded, you know, by the the mechanism that Howard is using here of this sort of sudden entrance of Sir George right at the moment that everyone thinks that the story is over. I mean, this is Die Hard, right? This is what happens at the end of Die Hard. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a great trope. I think what you see the most in common between this story and Die Hard is that both are stories where the villain's plot is motivating the action of the hero, not the hero's plot. And so both heroes, uh, you know, John McCain and Jack Hollister are really living in the villain's world and not living in a world of heroes, the world where all the heroes have won. Yes, right. I mean, that's a major feature of action stories. And, and we see this, I think, most commonly in superhero comics or, you know, the movie adaptations of superhero comics, where we like to think of the superheroes as, you know, the protagonists because they're the heroes, but they're not, right? The, the characters who are actually taking action, the characters who have objectives that they are trying to accomplish uh, and then have a story that is about how something's getting in the way of them accomplishing those objectives are the villains. The villains are the protagonists of stories like this. And I think recognizing that is actually a really key component of being able to write these successfully. And it's quite clear that Howard has thought through his villains, what they're up to, what motivates them. And it's well done. Right. Because the real villain of Western civilization is changing the status quo. And I think somehow somehow that has been communicated to us through storytelling forever, forever. And it's a great thing to kind of think about if that thought has never really occurred to you before. Well, we're into chapter five now. This chapter is called Into the Sunrise I Go. I think it's a fitting title for the last chapter of the story. Hollister and Kane are on the move. They're letting nothing get in their way. But it turns out there's actually nothing in their way anyway because the guards have just stopped doing what they're paid to do, I guess, by Banway. It's unclear. But Jack and Kane have no obstacles as they're racing down to the beach. They get to the beach. They approach the rocks, you know, by the sea caves where they hear voices. And the voices are Banway and Allardine uh, in a heated conflict, really. But it's a verbal spat. Banway wants the pirates to take Mary. Allardine does not want to take Mary because of Hardraker being killed by Kane. And because the reason that Hardraker was killed by Kane was that this pirate crew is awful to women that they have on board. And <laughs> Kane is out to get vengeance. Allardine's solution, though, is not much better. He thinks he should just kill the girl right now and then get back to the ship and just leave the girl dead on the beach. Because once they're on the ship, Kane won't be able to get to them. Kane doesn't really uh, swim, I guess, or travel in water. Allardine makes the move to just slit Mary's throat. He's done talking. But Jack gets there in time, and he jumps off this kind of small rock outcropping into the sand. He actually doesn't land that well, but he recovers quickly. <laughs> and then he goes to fight Allardine and Bandway. I guess Jack has a cutlass here. That's important. Jack dispatches Allardine quickly. He just slices his head in two, and then he pulls the cutlass out of Allardine's head, and he tries to sword fight 
Banway, Cutlass versus Rapier. But in, in this fight, the, the Rapier has the advantage. Plus, Jack is wounded, and his head is still bleeding from the blow that Sam gave him before, and his jump didn't go well. So he's really at a, at a disadvantage in general. Even so, Jack briefly gains the advantage over Banway when Banway slips on the sand. And he tries to stab Banway between the ribs with the cutlass, but the blow causes the blade to shatter rather than Banway being killed. And Jack, at this point, just falls backwards, I guess from the shock that probably went up his arm. Banway recovers, and just as he is about to bring his sword down on Jack, Kane jumps in and takes over the sword fight. And then another sword fight takes place for a little while with some dialogue and stuff. Needless to say, Kane is an exceptional sword fighter, maybe one of the best of all time. So Banway doesn't even stand a chance. Kane now reveals the mystery of Banway's invincibility because he refuses to stab Banway in the chest. Banway's just wearing steel mail beneath his shirt, and Kane himself has used this trick once or twice before. He's not mocking Banway or making fun of him for adding extra protection here. It's a dangerous environment, but Kane is still going to win this fight because he's just such a better sword fighter and fighter in general than Banway. And there are more ways to kill a man than to stab him in the in the chest. In fact, Kane knows how much of an advantage he has here, and it's just cruel to continue toying with Banway in his mind. And we've also got all the dialogue out of the way. So Kane shows Banway the small mercy of killing him quickly. Kane stabs Banway through the eyeball with this rapier really fast. Like, it's so fast that Banway doesn't see it coming. And Jack, who was watching all of this, even though he has a head injury, can't even track Kane's motion as he plunges the blade in and out of Banway's eye. This is the final fight scene here, and I, I just want to talk about how Howard makes a point of explaining that uh, Solomon Kane is making a lot of comments at Sir George while they're fighting. He's talking about the fact that he's using this uh, plate mail armor under his clothing, but he's not taunting Sir George. And this is very different from the fight in the cave where Solomon Kane is clearly taunting the the fish hawk. And there's a lot of insult going on there and a lot of passion, a lot of anger. Uh, Kane doesn't seem to have that anger here. Here he just seems to have kind of stepped into a role, uh, like it's almost just a function that he has to perform. And all of that anger and vengeance just isn't present in this scene. And and he also seems sincere in his comments here about wishing that he didn't have to kill Sir George. I think this is something that's going to be important in the discussion episode, because one of the things we're going to want to do is talk about Solomon Kane as an Arthurian hero, talk about Solomon Kane as a, a paladin. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I mean, Kane is mostly dispassionate about what his business is. Uh, and, and we're going to have a great mission statement here in just a few minutes at the end. That really is his mission statement. But it's not just vengeance that Cain is about. It's also removing evil from the world. And I think Cain feels that there are times when you have to be passionate about that uh, and, and really punish evil and times when it's just dispatching a bad guy. And that, that's how he's treating this fight with Banway. 
Yeah, he's just a guy doing his job. He he actually thought that he was going to get to quit and go home like an hour ago. This is he's he's working late and he's he's tired of of uh, of of giving taunting speeches about it. He just wants to finish this off and uh, you know get to the local bar. Although I guess not because he's a Puritan, but you know get somewhere other than here. Uh, I do also want to address one more thing before we get the epilogue of the story, the conclusion of the story. When you started chapter five, Brandon, you uh, you expressed uh, a little grumpiness, I think, about the lack of obstacles in the characters getting to the the beach. And I'm not sure that the solution actually is to give them obstacles that I think I would have found annoying. I think that the solution there was to not narrate every move that we could have had a time break where we know that they're going to the beach. So chapter five could have just opened at the beach. But you did also skip over because of this, uh, the thing that I thought was the best part of this story, or at least the second best part of the story, which is to say that now that that eight page fight scene is finally over and I can stop skimming, (laughs) now I can pause and get the Howard that I want, the types of things that I go to Howard for this descriptive writing. I just want to pause here and read the landscape description of this final scene because it is gorgeous. Here's what Howard writes. The fog had faded and the moon was clear, showing the black rocks of the beach 200 yards away, and beyond them the long, low, evil-looking ship riding at anchor outside the foam line of the breakers. Along the beach the rocks rose black and sinister like jagged dark houses, hiding whatever was going on in the sand at the water's edge. This type of writing, and this is not even close to Howard's best descriptive work, but this type of descriptive writing, this is what I am going to Howard for, right? So I will skim over that fight scene. And I did the first time. I did pay more attention to it the second time. But this, just this one paragraph, this I savored for as long as I can. I spent more time on this one paragraph than I did on the fight scene, for sure. <laughs> well, well, I'm glad you found something that you uh, really could cling <laughs> to in this story. My grumpiness is really directed at the fact that Howard made such a big deal of the idea that the guards are out patrolling and this is why they can't escape the house. And then Mary gets kidnapped and then there are no guards. So it's 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 a real narrative problem for me to have the guards and patrols and sentries brought up so many times in the story, but we never actually see them. They're gone when Jack is there. Kane kills one or two, maybe, uh, but we don't ever see that happen. And then they're gone again. And so for me, that is putting an obstacle in the story that keeps the protagonists, Jack and Mary, from actually escaping and getting to safety. And it's just, it's too plotty. I mean, it doesn't read as though Howard has worked out how he can keep Jack and Mary there. Because when he needs the guards gone, they're And that is definitely a fair criticism of the plot. And the fix needed to happen, actually, in the previous scene. It's not the opening of this scene that's the the problem. It's the motivation there at the the action climax. There needed to be a different motivation for them to to stay. And and you don't need the fear of guards to be that motivation anyway. It's actually stronger if, say, Jack wants to stay for some reason, that Jack feels bound to to help Kane here, even though he's on the mission to save Mary. And maybe the thing to do to save Mary is to, you know, run at this point, but that you know, there's more to it than that, that he needs to stay and help Solomon Kane. I don't know. That's just the quick fix that I would come up with. Yes. Well, we are not even finished with this story yet. and We're already <laughs> trying to fix it. So let's wrap up here. At this point in the story, after all the fighting has taken place and all the duels and all the deaths, Mary is still there. We can't forget about her. She's the reason why everybody's dying after all. She calls everyone's attention to the fact that Banway's house is burning somehow. It's burning down. And the fire reflects on the water, leaving everyone with the sensation that the escaping pirates in their rowboat 
are rowing in a sea of blood. Yeah, it's uh, it's great imagery, but this ending is out of control. I mean, another house, another house is burning at the end of a story. It's the third story this year that ends with a house fire. It's starting to make me superstitious. I guess we'll be talking about house fires in our year in review episode as one of the major themes, I guess. Yeah, these people don't even have faulty wiring. I just, I don't get it. <laughs> Although I guess the presence of candles in fireplaces may be a little more dangerous than faulty yeah. wiring. But Yeah, I think that's literally why we use electricity. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kane is still there and he's looking over Jack and Mary and he tells Jack that he would bind Jack's wounds and make sure that everything's all right and, you know, see them through this hard time that's coming up. But he hears townsfolk and probably some of Jack and Mary's kinsfolk arriving and they'll just take care of both of them now. And Solomon Kane doesn't need to do that. Mary asks Kane who he is because she wants to thank him properly and he says no thanks are needed. He's just glad she's okay. That's all the thanks he needs. But then she repeats her question. Who are you? And this is Kane's kind of mission statement and monologue here at the end of the story. He says this. I'm going to read the whole thing. I am a landless man. I come out of the sunset and into the sunrise I go, wherever the Lord doth guide my feet. I seek my soul's salvation, mayhap. I came following the trail of vengeance. Now I must leave you. The dawn is not far away, and I would not have it find me idle. It may be I shall see you no more. My work here is done. The long red trail is ended. The man of blood is dead. But there be other men of blood. And other trails of revenge and retribution. I work the will of God. While evil flourishes and wrongs go rank. While men are persecuted and women wronged. While weak things, human or animal, are maltreated. There is no rest for me beneath the skies, nor peace at any board or bed. Farewell. And that's his speech and, and mission statement. Uh, it's kind of great. Uh, Jack and Mary ask him to stay, of course, but he walks away, vanishing into the darkness. And that, that's the end of the Blue Flame of Vengeance. <laughs> yeah, and what an amazing ending this is. Uh, there is a lot going on in this speech. It is obviously going to play a large role in our discussion episode. It's practically demanding that. So I'm going to hold off commenting anymore until then. You know, We'll pick it up in two weeks. But this is just a fantastic, just a really interesting ending, putting Solomon Kane in the role of Batman here, right? He's asked his name by the damsel in distress. He doesn't really give an an answer. And then he just disappears. Like you turn around and you look back and he's just gone, even though you should still see him walking down the, the beach. And maybe actually, I mean, it is Batman, of course, right? But it might actually be better to compare Solomon Kane to Angel, I guess, given the intense desire not to be caught out in the sun and the quest for <laughs> redemption, right? Angel, of course, just kind of a variation on Batman, but all of the hallmarks of Angel are here. I mean, even also, you know, salvation, I, I guess, right? I guess is what he says rather than redemption, but, you know, it amounts to the same thing. This is Angel. Yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, it's it's just this brooding hero uh, who wears far too much black in the sun and just would rather be out at <laughs> night uh, trying to go around and right wrongs and and uh, pursue uh, rightness in the world. It's it's great. I mean, this speech at the end was my favorite part of the story. Uh, is is a lot of fun. It's a great setup for a uh, for a serial character. 
It absolutely is. This is not actually the first Solomon Kane story, but it feels like it should be. It feels like we get the mission statement for an entire series at the end here, right? That this makes me want to go read more Solomon Kane stories. The fight scene did not, but this definitely makes me want to go read more. And we will read more of these here on Elder Sun. We definitely have to do at least one Solomon Kane story that actually has a supernatural or a weird fiction element going for it, though that is also something we're going to take up in the discussion episode. Well, I think that should do it for this episode, then. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head over to the Clay Temple forums or our new subreddit, which is Clay Temple Media, and let us know what you thought of the story, The Blue Flame of Vengeance. And if you're interested in Hellblazer or just occult detectives more broadly, please join us on Patreon to check out our new episode on Hold Me. Next time, we're going to be back with our discussion episode here on this story, The Blue Flame of Vengeance. So until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>